My name is Jason Fleming. And my name is Julie Muir. And this is the More Than My Past podcast from, from the, the Forward, Forward Trust. Trust. In our last episode, we talked about the importance of family in shaping people's lives, for good and for bad. But of course, the people who contribute to our struggles and successes aren't limited to family members alone. This episode focuses on the influence that people outside of one's close family can have. That could be through the example they set or the support they provide. Once again, we'll be looking at both sides of the coin. Negative role models, or a lack of role models altogether, have contributed to some of the problems our guests in this series have experienced. But equally, positive role models and supporters were often vital in turning their lives around. We hope this episode can motivate you to accept support if you need it or offer it out to someone struggling if you're in a position to do so. If you're looking for help, you can access Forward's Reach Out online chat service at forwardtrust.org.uk. But if you are in a crisis, please speak to the Samaritans instead. So Jules, what do you think would be your role model growing up? Now, I remember being really young and... It was very sort of closed in, like what you could aspire to. I grew up in a council flat on a council estate in Devon in the 80s, and it was very small. Mm. And then I remember going through school and being a teenager, and there was this girl. She had a reputation. You didn't want to mess with her. I thought she was cool. She was a role model, and she'd just been released from prison. And I remember this buzz around her when she came into the local town and people were just like, oh, look, it's her. She's been, you know, she's just got out of prison. I thought she is just so cool. I mean, looking back, I think, oh, my God, how insane. But there was nothing else there. There was no significant people around me that were doing great things, Mm. if that makes sense. Everyone was just surviving, trying to just get by, you know, uh, robbing the local electric meter, you know, for for the money to put back into it. It was very much survival mode back in them days. We talked about that before, Jules, with you and about how that becomes normalised, you know, so that like, the robbing the lecky or the aspiring to be like someone who's just got out of nick because that's the world, you know, and that's, you, you aspire to what you see. Yeah. I was lucky I had, because I wanted to act from being a young kid, I saw like Tim Roth and Gary Oldman who were like, to me were like London working class lads who'd then gone on to succeed as actors. So that was easy for me because I had my sights were higher in the sense that I didn't know those people, but I could see that it was possible. What they were doing was possible. So that's kind of what I aspired to be. But supporters, I suppose, really, if you're lucky enough when you're that age where you're a sort of turning point in your life, I guess I'd say that would at the end of primary school, when you're at that point where you're like, you're going to go down that road or this road. If you have a great, one of those iconic teachers, which every sort of successful person seems to have had, and every person who slipped off the road, the right the right road seems to not have had, you know, and I had that teacher, I had, you know, Miss Gotto, who had just forced me to make the right decisions, and uh, I'll thank her for that. I'm just trying to think, really, of my biggest supporters. I mean... Immediately, my family mm. were my biggest supporters, trying to refocus me, really, mm. in a way that I couldn't see back then because it was all very, 
you know, dictating, don't do this, don't do that, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. And as a young girl, impressionable, that for me was just like rules and expectations. Pushback against that. Complete pushback. But actually, they stepped in at a time when I really needed it, which was when I was in prison. They came and visited me and it was a really different dynamic. Mm. And at that point then, I, I could see their love and that the support that they had and wanted for me was coming from a place from their heart as mm. opposed to, you know, me feeling like they're just trying to tell me what to do. So it's almost like it took the crisis for you to realise how deep their love for you was. Exactly. That's cool. Yeah. So before we delve more into the positive power of role models and supporters, let's listen to this clip. It's an interview with music entrepreneur Corey Johnson. Corey has a unique and wonderful way of describing how his early life lacked positive examples to follow. I've never really had role models. I've had role models. Like, yeah. really, as a young kid growing up, even now, I guess I'm pretty much the same kid. I don't really listen to no one unless they're in a position I would like to be in. Mm-hmm. Or they've done something I would like to do. So I guess from being a little kid, there wasn't many, especially within my community, there wasn't many affluent examples. Because coming from a Caribbean community, especially then like prior to this kind of Instagram era, it was always kind of perceived as then you didn't want to show your success or you didn't want to show your wealth. So if you look within our community, there wasn't them, those successes, because we wasn't passing on the the tricks of the trade or we wasn't passing on the the other little perks. So whether that was then the knowledge about then housing or investment, whether that was political or financial or emotional literacy, none of those things was being passed on. Actor Michael Balogun's journey has taken him from prison to the National Theatre. To use Corey's term, Michael had his own road model when he was young in the form of his cousin. So like my aunt had four kids and her oldest was my cousin. And I used to look up to him. I thought he was great because, you know, he'd been to prison. He was kind of outspoken. He spoke his mind and he, and he took a liking to me, man. He really, you know, I felt a real, we had a really strong connection. Mm. Obviously looking back in hindsight, his influence on me wasn't a good influence. Mm. But at that period of time, he seemed like some, he seemed like he genuinely cared about me. He took interest in you. Yeah, yeah, he took a lot of interest in me, man. And like, if I ever had a problem at school with anyone, he'd come down, he'd be there, you know? So, so yeah, that was my person who I kind of looked up to. Jules, that's really interesting to hear because Michael literally said exactly the same as you. And, you know, for someone who's never been incarcerated and never been involved except through this podcast and through the work we do in the prisons, it's obviously a real thing. It's a real thing that, that those guys are idolised. Well, of course. And it's really difficult in today's age where so many cuts have been made to local youth centres mm-hmm. where you might have really positive role models, mm-hmm. not road models, yeah. but actually road models that have turned into role models for young boys and girls that are aspiring to be something and that they're exposed to something different. It's just so interesting to think that you glamorise something which ultimately is the most boring time of your life where you are forgotten where yeah. you just sell your, you're selling your life for the period of your sentence and then you come out and start again. Yeah. And there is nothing glamorous and nothing attractive, not one single second of that. No, exactly. Because everything you had prior to going in is just gone, isn't it? Yeah. It means nothing. Yeah. Michael's journey from prison to becoming an actor was helped by an actor named Peter Sells, who he workshopped with. Peter provided Michael with that self-belief that we all need. But I was going to these workshops 
every Wednesday and Thursday with but everyone else there was like either drunk or homeless. They were just doing it because it meant they could get a free meal and a coffee yeah, 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 and yeah. whatever. But I was there like pen and paper, like right, taking notes. And this guy called Pete, this actor called Peter Sells. I'll never forget, man. One of the, he helped me so much because he could see that I was taking it serious. And he was like, and he was trying to basically explain to me, he's like, Michael, he's like, what will make you a good actor isn't you just be, don't worry, you don't have to be naturally good at it. But that, you know, you know, now you're taking it quite serious. That's, that's it. Keep doing that and you'll get better at it. Da, 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 da. He literally basically took me under his wing, man, and taught me so much stuff. Mm. It wasn't even to teach me stuff. It's just he had faith. He believed in me. Yeah. He believed that I could be an actor. Mm. Uh, when I didn't even see it, he was saying it to me. He's like, you can do it. You've got something. Da, da, da. I remember thinking, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. Mate. What can you see? But that belief that he had in me made me believe in it. It's interesting, Jules, that Michael said about that guy, Peter Sills, giving him the belief that he could achieve what he wanted to achieve. And that's massively important, isn't it? Because we all look to other people to um, assure us that we're good or that we're capable of achieving what we want to achieve. Well, it's it's like self-validation, isn't it? It's expecting people to validate us. So they talk about the internal, external locus of evaluation. It's when we seek at, at people from outside ourselves to tell us we're doing good, mm -hmm. we look good. And unless you feel that and believe it yourself, and it's so hard because remembering messages and this is like growing up for any child, you need to, you need to have a balance. But if you're told that, you're terrible, you're bad at this, you're stupid, yeah. then what is the internal message that yeah. you're feeding yourself? And actually, that's so damaging because when you grow up, that's your internal critic. That's the voice and the message that you'll tell yourself. Mm -hmm. As an adult is you're, you're stupid, you're thick, you'll never amount to anything. So unless you've got someone giving you positive affirmation, like that's fantastic, you're doing great, you're doing well, mm -hmm. then the balance is tilted yeah. and you end up with really low self-worth, a really low, you know, opinion of yourself and you will seek different ways to have validation from people, whether that's in, in a negative way or a positive mm -hmm. way, um, putting yourself in risky situations for people to validate you because you're not feeling that yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what we were speaking about before about, because I was lucky my mum was so supportive and told me that I could achieve what I wanted to achieve, even though I had self-doubt, that was the internal message. The internal message was, this is not impossible and I can do this. Supporters can come from unlikely sources. Have a listen to this story from Tony Atwood. Tony now runs a housing charity called Hope and Vision Communities with a little help from his biggest supporter. I was in a very dark place at the end of my using and the end of my offending. I was a nuisance to society. I caused a lot of harm, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. I couldn't see a way out. It was hopeless. Constantly receiving messages from people in authority, like police, probation, courts, everyone I come into contact with, whether they said it or not, the message that was transmitted to me was, you'll never change. I believed it myself. It almost becomes your own message, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's the tape that I played, and I got stuck. I couldn't get out of that. So Peter Ross, the judge, he'd sentenced me once or twice before. Two years, five-year driving ban, two years, 
for commercial burglaries. And I was actually on remand at the time, waiting a sentence again for another commercial burglary. I'd already been up in front of him and he'd said, expect five years. So I'm sat on the wing in Bullingdon, waiting to be sentenced. I come across a newsletter for the Elder Manor. Bold capitals at the top. It said, I grew up without a father. I don't want my son to grow up without his. And at this point, I'd already lost relationship with my son. Another loss, which really hurt. I was convicted to write a letter to that treatment centre, so I wrote it, and they come and see me. She wanted to offer me a place there and then. She said, I've got to go and get the funding, but I'd like to have you come. So I turned up at court for sentencing, and the judge, Peter Ross, he was a bit red-faced. So I said, I don't know how you've managed to get a place at rehab. I don't know how you've got the funding, but you've got it. He said, against my better judgment, I'm going to let you go. <laughs> I'll turn up for this rehab. I was on a pretty extensive community order, unheard of, three-year community order, really strict conditions. I, I wanted to go and say thank you to the judge. So I requested to go, and the police come and picked me up, took me to court. At the same time, I was putting a plan together for Hope and Vision Communities. The judge come for lunch. I told him my story, and I asked him if he'd join with me and be on the board of trustees. Today he's the chair of trustees. It's a really unique relationship. You know, I didn't deserve an opportunity. I deserved the five years. But you give me a chance, and that unlocked my heart, softened my heart to have a relationship with with authority, the ultimate authority, maybe, you know? That is so powerful in itself, this tussle with authority from, from a very young age. And here you are, you say you feel, you don't feel like you, sh you deserve that chance. Thank God they gave you that chance. Mm. But you've then taken authority, you've got him in a headlock, <laughs> and you've decided to walk with it and, and sort of tussle and work out that dynamic and that relationship. And you're right, of the highest, it's a judge who is ultimately in control of your liberty and your freedom. That is a huge role model, isn't it? Great supporter and role model all packaged into one. Sometimes it's people who have been in a similar position themselves who are best placed to help out with problems like addiction. In the case of fundraiser Speedo Mick, it was old friends who helped him into recovery. The same friends had once been part of his problem, but they became his solution. What happened was there was three of us who were used together. Me, Mick and Mal. Mal went to prison. And he came, when he came out of prison, he was in London. He was in one of the London prisons, you know. He got clean, went to the, the fellowships, and then he comes down about 15 years later. He was kept coming down and trying to get Mick to go up. This is the other Mick, uh, Baldy Mick. <laughs> and um, because it, I was like, Harry Mick, and he was Baldy Mick. And, uh, <laughs> and he went down, and eventually Mick had had enough, and he come up even though we tried a few times, and he got clean, and he got two years clean. So, they, so there's two of us up. And then Mick came down one day, and I was just like that with me head in my hands, sitting in the house, and he pulls up, and he had a big shiny car and all that. And I was like, what the hell? And he was clean, and he had the spark back in his eyes and stuff like that. And I was like, well, you don't have a drink. I just couldn't, just couldn't fit it into my head, you know what I mean? The Mick 
has not had a drink for two years or, or, or taken any drugs, you know what I mean, which was more more to the point. And I, I didn't believe him, even though he looked great, you know. Three things that happened to me on that day. The first one was I had had enough. Second one was I had a little tiny bit of willingness to change my life. Didn't know where to go to, to sort it out, but I didn't want to be in the position I was in anymore. Thirdly, Mick pulls up in his big shiny car and his big shiny head, and he came in. He came in to to, to my house, and he sat there, and he was in recovery. So somebody was sitting next to me who had the solutions to my problems, and it talk about the stars aligning on that Honestly, very day. Yeah, because your willingness doesn't turn up very often. You know what I mean? Maybe every six months, and then it's it's like a slither of a wind that you have to to force yourself through before it closes. You know, and if the support's not there, if the network's not there, if you don't know where to go, you're just climbing out of a window, and then you just there's nothing there. It's just barren land. You you may as well just get back into it to where you know. So what happened then? Did you get in the car? Well, I jumped on his head like a cat. I'll tell you, (laughs) that's what I thought. I jumped on his head like that, and 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 (laughs) not really, but it was it was sort of that way. And I went, Mick, please take me with you. I just shouted, and I asked for help. I hadn't been asking anybody for any help for a long time because every time I asked for help, I think he did back at them, batted it back at them. You know what I mean? So people weren't really offering me anymore. He said, yeah, and I couldn't believe it, you know, because like I say, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't easy to be around. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so the three of us were up there, all going to meetings, carrying the message, man, and so we all carried the message, and I'll never, I'll never be able to thank them uh, enough, you know what I mean, them two, just, just for taking the chance on, on an insane, really insane person who had that. a lot of issues. Yeah. On a similar note, Raf Chavis explained the importance of sponsors and group meetings in his recovery. I think the main principle in recovery is that uh, alone we're in bad company, right? I'm not capable of constantly making good decisions by self. You know, I love what the NA um, Narcotics Anonymous sponsorship leaflet says that the reason why we need a sponsor is because we cannot spot self-deceit by self. And I love that so much, you know, because that, that's in the NA book, but even religious books, when you read, like, you know, they, they say the same. It's a, it's, a, it's a principle that I justify and rationalize and I lie to myself in ways that are incredible. And I had many people uh, this uh, past nine years uh, helping me uh, spot my blind spots for me. Uh, and I still have, you know, my, my sponsor is 28 years clean and he, he has a sponsor. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm nine years clean. I have a sponsor. And, and and the reason why I have a sponsor is because I can't spot self-deceit myself. So um, I would say a few people. I think Aaron was my first ever sponsor in NA. Uh, he took me through the 12 steps for the first time. I told th- that guy things that I thought I was going to die uh, and, and, and bury those secrets with me. And I remember one day he said to me, he said, Raph, you're not taking your secrets to the grave. Your secrets are taking you to the grave. And he, he showed me how uh, my inability of staying clean or gagging clean was directly related to, to the shame that I was bearing and the guilt I felt and the remorse. And he was saying, it's time to get free. And, uh, and I had loving men that hugged me, that embraced me, that fed me. You know, in the physical sense, on the emotional sense, on the spiritual sense, uh, they held my hands, literally, 
uh, and guided me through. Uh, they didn't judge me. They didn't point fingers on me. They didn't say uh, there was something wrong with me. Uh, they just accepted me as I was, uh, where I was at that time. And they guided me through the steps to see that, that I wasn't a bad person. I was a sick person that needed help. That I suffer from an illness um, that kills people every day. And Aaron was like, yeah, for me, he, as my first sponsor, we'll always have like this special place for, uh, uh, you know, in my heart for him. Do you know what I mean? We've talked about supporters, Jules, but peer support is a term that not everyone might understand. What does that mean in recovery and, and how does the Forward Trust enable that? So a peer supporter is really important in anyone's journey. Now, this could be someone that has been where you've been and has come out the other side, is not professional, but can just say, listen, I've been where you've been. This is my experience and this is how I got to where I've got to. Because for a lot of people in addiction that are in the depth of it, I mean, an example for me, when I was in addiction, I knew no one that got clean. Mm-hmm. No one no one in my circle I'd ever seen come from addiction and get into recovery. And it wasn't until I was in prison and I sat down with a drugs worker and she said, I want you to talk to someone. And it was another prisoner. And this other prisoner sat down and explained to me, I've been where you've been and this is how I got to where I am now and I'm clean and I did this program. And that was the first point where I actually opened my eyes and ears and heard what she said because it wasn't a professional dictating to me what they thought I should do. It was someone coming from a place of, I know where you've been. Yeah. So what we do at Forward Trust, and we really feel like this is a really important part of anyone's journey, it's to have that lived experience person being able to support other people. So, for instance, in many of our prisons where we run programs, we have peer supporters that live on the wings mm-hmm. and they help people coming through. So it's like a comrade. It's like someone who's walked the journey you've It walked. is. It's a, it's a role model, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a positive role model. And we've got them in the community and they form part of Forward Connect. And that is all about a group of people coming together in unity and in a group setting to support the people that come in. So you could be released from prison, for instance, Brixton Prison tomorrow, and Forward Trust will link you in with Forward Connect. And there's a group of you know, hundreds of men and women across the country that are meeting either virtually or face-to-face and they've had experience that this person's experienced Mm. and now they are clean and sober and meeting to give support to those that are coming in. We've heard from a couple of the lads about how people who've walked the same road become part of the solution, but that's not always easily facilitated, is it? That's not always an easy journey. Exactly. Just because you've, you know, got clean and sober and you've stopped offending, it doesn't mean that every door is open to you and one of the most important doors that should be open to people with lived experience that have trained in the profession and stayed clean and sober and offence free some people for even 20 years now myself it's been 20 years I still struggle sometimes to get into prisons and you've got to share you've got to declare you've got to say it all and sometimes I get knockbacks and for me it's really disheartening because in my position I should be able to have access to go into the prisons that we work in to be able to carry the message and support the clients and support the staff with my experience 20 years after I walk out of a prison with no offending in between, no caution, no speeding ticket, no mm. fine, no nothing. And it's still an issue. There's still barriers and it's and it's really disheartening. You can really understand how people 
can throw the towel in yeah. because they continually get knockbacks, even, you know, not just into prison settings or or institutions, but in, in any sort of job because you've still got to continually declare. In our last episode, university lecturer Liz Jones told us about the support she received from the late Dennis and Anne Cookson. They were so tight and emotionally close that Liz regarded them as her own family, but they also helped her on a practical level too. Dennis and Anne Cookson, the most strong, amazing people on this planet, they were the ones that gave me the strength. And we lost Anne, sorry, at the start of COVID, and then Dennis died um, October last year. It's silly, you know, so every year on my clean day, I used to send him flowers and a letter. And every time I used to write the letter, I used to cry, you know, writing it out. But yeah, they were just so supportive. You know, they I was in an absolute mess. I've been injecting everything. I've got necrosis and, you know, my skin was rotting from the inside out. Um, and they wanted to pay for us to go into Detox 5, I think it was called. So five days, you get knocked out, you get well, everything forced out of your system. Uh, and I didn't want to do it that way because I knew it was too easy. So I, I knew that I needed to feel it somehow. Um, so I don't know if some money exchanged hands, but I got a really quick placement in, in Turning Point. So they, Dennis and Anne had phoned me every day, how you got, how you doing, how you doing? Um, you know, we love you, we know you're proud of you. Uh, came out of detox, they were there to, to pick me up. So they picked us up and they'd cleaned the house from top to bottom. They'd taken anything, they'd put new furniture in there, they'd decorated, they'd done it to make it a home. If, if they could have picked the house up and moved it to a different place, they would have. They'd also been around saying, you know, no one's coming around us. You don't think you're knocking on that door anymore. You know, Dennis started employing, um, so he owned, owned this big warehouse company and everything, and he started employing ex-offenders and he'd give them a two-year thing, you know, like a two-year contract. And then once the two-year contract was up, as long as they didn't cock up, then he'd, he'd phone around everyone else on the industrial say, oh, have you got anything for this lad and get him into work? So, and then he'd always, and he always said that was because of me, because of, seeing how I changed my life around, you know, and I would never, ever have done it without them. You know, I wouldn't have my son. I wouldn't I wouldn't be in the job I'm in. I wouldn't be here talking to you. I, I possibly would have been in dead within sort of a year within that. But, yeah, just those words were the most special thing ever. As you heard from that clip, some of the support Dennis and Anne were able to provide was financial. It's important to recognise the reality that money does play a part in some of these stories of support. Cash can open doors, and Michael Balligan was helped by the philanthropist named Lady Edwina Grosvenor. Lady Edwina founded the Clink Charity, and through that charity met Michael. He obviously made quite an impression. Mate, the money came to me in prison to go to drama school. Lady Edwina paid for it. Wow. Yeah, she paid for it. She said, I told her, she went, why did she come back? I said, I want to be an actor. She went, do you? She didn't think I'd get in. She's like, Michael, you know what? If you get in, I'll pay for it. Bloody hell. Because she, she my sister went, her sister tried to get into Rada and didn't get in. She went, so if you get in, Michael, I, don't worry, write to me and I'll sort it out for you. But she, does, she doesn't know the kind of man I am. You can't yeah. say that to me. Yeah. I'll make sure I get in. Yeah. She told me that. I was like, seriously, yeah? She's like, yeah. I was like, cool, forget it. Don't, don't. I was like, don't even say anything else. I was like, I'm going to get in, watch. And I got in and I, and I got in contact with her and she, she paid for my. Um, That's board. amazing. She, she gave me 60 grand towards my. Wow. Towards yeah, yeah. Jules, how do you feel about 
financial support. It's so important, financial support for anyone really struggling from addiction. And it's really important that there is enough support available, financial support for local authorities to be able to fund people to rehab. It's really minimal. It's less than 3% of the local authorities' money send people to rehab. That's really tight. You know, Jules, it's like even if you're the most uncaring and callous person alive, the economics of not having prisons full of prisoners again and again who go on that cycle of reoffending, readdiction, reincarceration. It economically doesn't make sense. You know, it economically makes sense to give them the tools to stay out of trouble, to stay sober and stay out of prison because it's much cheaper to do that than it is to put them in a prison cell. Exactly. And looking at the examples of Liz and Michael where they were both offered financial support to get to where they needed yeah. to go to... Now, if we rewind the tape and take away that financial support, how would it have ended up for both of them? Now, it might have been that they both ended up being where they wanted to be, but how many more hurdles, how many more struggles, how many more relapses or reoffending would they have had to have gone through to get there? Yeah, I mean, it can be the key. The finance can be the key. Unfortunately, it shouldn't be from entrepreneurs or people's kindness it should come as an absolute very very clear message from the government that we want to keep people out of prison and the way to do that is to give them the tools to live a a life that they're proud of exactly now one of the projects that i oversee is cloud's house in wiltshire Mm. and it's a phenomenal it's nearly been running 40 years next year 40 years of helping people save lives now one of the ways that we ensure that everybody receives the red carpet treatment to getting clean and sober is that it's available for everyone it's available if you haven't got any money and you need a bursary then we can allow you to come to clouds and we will support you and that bursary is usually funded through wealthy people that believe in addiction and recovery and they they donate money to us and that enables us to be able to provide life-saving treatment to people that wouldn't be able to have it Also, the funding comes from the local authority and it comes from people, Mm. private fee-paying clients. But it's open-door policy to anyone that needs treatment can make an application and we will do our best to make sure that you get in. Nice. Aside from hands-on support, role models can play a big impact just through the inspiration they provide. Here's ex-offender turned social enterprise founder Marie-Claire O'Brien on her role model, Paula Harriet. I want to talk about, I suppose, the woman who inspired me and she was an ex-prisoner that I was in custody with, actually, uh, Paula Harriet. She's really well known in the sector. She's the head of prisoner engagement, I think, for the Prison Reform Trust now. I was involved in a another charity um, doing a lot of work around the country um, and we were working on probation getting clients to feedback about what wasn't working and I saw her take centre stage and addressing you know as an ex-prisoner that I'd seen on the wings with you know her dreads and stuff um, going out to work every day going from that to to addressing these probation bosses and chiefs and really driving home the importance of, you know, listening to the people that are going through the system and lived experience and directing change, really, positive change and reform. And uh, seeing that was just like a light bulb moment because I think the shame and the stigma and self-loathing follows you around from prison. I think it's hard to shake off, especially with a, a crime as serious as mine. And... 
she just made me see what was possible for people like us and it kind of just lit a fire in my belly I think not even so much about ego but more around impact and really what we can do if we really put our minds to it and the distance that we can travel and and how if you invest in yourself in terms of education and just knowledge you can become really credible in those circles and people can listen to you and if you know if you can create a platform for other people to do the same which is what I try, I try and do with New Leaf and the networks that we've set up that is that's everything um so yeah I think she was probably one of my greatest role models and still is you know we're still friends to this day but seeing people that we relate to in positions of power you know whether that's from a race perspective or from a from a different perspective is so important we know that so yeah more power to that and people like yourself just you are inspirational so yeah I equally am in awe of you and find you completely inspiring and what you've gone on to do from where you were I think it's absolutely amazing and we are carrying a message you know role models in prisons in community to people that are in these sort of circumstances and seeing seeing yourself as a little footprint on someone's journey no matter how big or, or how small you've impacted that person and the next person will make a little footprint and those footprints get bigger and bigger Absolutely. reflecting back over this episode of role models i think it's really important we see progression in these people as well so they don't just see that Yes, you can get clean and you can be a peer supporter in prison. It's really important that they see them coming out the gate and coming back in as professionals Mm -hmm. and not just entry level like drug and alcohol workers or support workers. It's that they can see progression through the ranks as well into management, people in senior positions, people getting into the police. You know, Mm -hmm. people getting into law, into finance. It's, It's really seeing that the door is well and truly wide open. So for me to look back and see this person that ultimately opened the door for me, this role model in prison, when I was then released, I also seen people in recovery that had got into really good careers and had gone and studied. And it showed me actually that it doesn't matter who you are, where you've been or where you've come from, anything is possible and you can get to where you want to go with the right energy and the right support and the right mindset. I think that's a perfect way to end it. If you're interested in hearing more about the More Than My Past campaign and viewing dozens more inspirational stories, check out the campaign website, morethanmypast.org.uk. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe and look out for future episodes.